sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, your monthly health headlines in 60 seconds. Then, trick or treat, it's our monthly medical roundtable. Later, a special treat for Halloween, the Mutterbude Medical Museum in Philadelphia. But first, health headlines in 60 seconds from the past month. COVID-19 cases continue to trend in a downward trajectory. However, a torrent of different Omicron subvariants are emerging independently across the world, each with advantageous mutations for the virus, allowing it to make more people sick. Anticipating these new variants, the U.S. public health emergency was just extended to January 11th, 2023. Now, the powers activated by the emergency declaration have had a vast impact on the U.S. healthcare system and social safety net, allowing hospitals to act more nimbly when infections surge and keeping millions enrolled in public health insurance and expanding telehealth services. Meanwhile, flu season has arrived early in the U.S., the CDC is reporting unusually early upticks in flu cases, particularly in the South. A new federal rule that went into effect last week allows hearing aids for adults with low to moderate hearing loss to be sold over-the-counter without a prescription or hearing test. The hope is that the new rule will spur more competition in the hearing aid industry, drive innovation, and bring prices down. Hearing loss is a major risk for dementia. Lastly, for the first time, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has recommended screening for anxiety in children eight years and older. And that's your monthly medical health headlines in 60 seconds. Joining us today to delve deeper into some of those stories and more are Dr. Jennifer Cowart. She is a hospitalist here in Jacksonville. Dr. Cowart, welcome. Glad to be here, Joe. Great to have you. And Dr. Michelle Aquino, a hospitalist at Baptist Health Jacksonville and Action News Jax's medical correspondent. Always a pleasure to be here, Dr. Servin. It's so wonderful to have you both. And lastly, our third participant was unable to join us at the last minute due to the fact he got COVID, a reminder that the condition is still among us. So let's start on COVID. The U.S. has extended the COVID public health emergency through January 11th, a clear demonstration that the Biden administration still views COVID as a crisis, despite President Biden's recent claim that the pandemic is over. The public health emergency, first declared in January 2020 by the Trump administration, has been renewed every 90 days since the pandemic began. So, Dr. Coward, I'll ask you this question that we probably have asked for a few times already. Is the pandemic over? And if so, are we now in an endemic stage? Oh, that's always the loaded question. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so I would say as far as massive spikes that overwhelm hospitals, uh, thankfully, we haven't seen that. Uh, really since the the Delta surge um, and some other related case counts last year. 
Um, so if your definition of, of pandemic is overwhelming hospitals, uh, we haven't seen that for some time, and this is great news. Um, we are still seeing a high amount of community spread of the illness and a lot of absent, you know, people having to call in sick to work. Uh, full disclosure, I actually worked the last three nights uh, as backup call because one of my coworkers uh, actually also got COVID. And so, um, you know, it's still here. I will leave the, the parsing of are we in the pandemic or after the pandemic to um, epidemiologists. But uh, certainly things are very open. People are going about their lives and people are still getting COVID. Uh, most of those folks who get COVID do just fine, but some folks still get really, really sick. So most important for me and my patients is let's not worry about the terminology so much as let's still work to take care of ourselves and try to prevent getting COVID. And for me, the most important step I could take recently was to get my bivalent booster. That is a great segue to our next question, Dr. Aquino. Uh, sadly, there's only been 15 million bivalent vaccine shots given out in the United States. Uh, as a reminder to our listeners, there's 300 million plus people in the United States. What's going on? Uh, are, are, are you seeing people getting this vaccine, this specific one? Well, I know I got it. Yeah, some of us are getting it. And here's what it is. I think we're just all COVID fatigue. We started mentioning this term, oh goodness, I think the second year of the pandemic. And right. you know, this is going on into the third year. So it's just fatigue. And you know, as Dr. Coward said, uh, we're not seeing the high caseloads and people are not as scared of COVID as they used to be, I think. Uh, which is a good thing. It's it's becoming less uh less deadly, I guess, you know, right. these mutations. And and by the way, I'm just going to call it the Scrabble variants because there are so many <laughs> letters now and how to term these, these new variants that I just like to term them all Scrabble variants. I think that's a great term. Uh, and I saw that from someone, I can't remember who I took it from, but anyway, so all these Scrabble variants are coming out and, you know, they're not causing as much havoc as we had before. And so I, I think that's what it is. The fatigue, the less, uh, you know, the people are not as sick, you're hearing people, yes, they're having to take time off work because they get COVID, but they're not having this severe sickness as we had before. And so I think we're all getting a sense of uh, of just, oh, it's not that bad anymore. It's it's almost a, a cold right now. That's what COVID is to a lot of people. So this is the concerning part though, right? Because if someone were to say that to me right this moment, I would agree with them. But I would say, listen, we're going into winter right now. So this is going to be interesting. You know, are all these Scrabble variants going to stay as, uh, let's say, puny and, and not as potent as before? As all our collective immunity goes down, are any, or, you know, are one of these variants going to start really kicking up and become much stronger? And then we're going to be behind the eight ball. That's a million dollar question. So, so it's interesting going forward to see how many people are actually going to be scared of, of, of these variants and, and feel that there is a need for, for boostering. You know, I think right now, if you are immunocompromised, if you're older, you know, 65 or older, uh, if you live in a household that you have people that are immunocompromised or sick, or you're, you're like us in the healthcare field where you are exposed to people that have no immune system and you definitely don't want to get any of your patients sick, I think, those of us that I just mentioned, uh, we definitely need to get boosted. Uh, you know, I got my flu shot and my booster shot same day, easy peasy. I'm just, you know, living my best life now. So I think if you're in that um, subgroup I just mentioned, getting a booster is definitely important. Uh, but I can see how the rest of America is just exhausted and, and feeling like, you know what, I don't know that I want to get a booster right now. And I, and I understand that. No, that makes it makes perfect sense. I know so many people have just said to me, you know, enough is enough, but this is the moment that we do recommend people get boosters. So I appreciate that. Let me kind of go to a different topic related to COVID, but not about COVID. As we say goodbye to the COVID public health emergency in the new year, we're going to be seeing some dramatic healthcare changes. One of those areas is in telehealth. To say that telehealth services rose during the pandemic is an understatement. Prior to COVID, telehealth accounted for less than 1% of outpatient care, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Telehealth services have since surged 
and at their peak accounted for 40% of outpatient visits for mental health and substance abuse. Now, the HHS has already given a heads up to telehealth providers on the post-pandemic state of telehealth. The agency in June issued guidance explaining how providers can continue providing audio-only telehealth services in line with HIPAA requirements. The U.S. House of Representatives has made a move to extend telehealth flexibilities into 2024 by voting in favor of a bill. That effort, however, has yet to pass the Senate. So, Dr. Cowart, do you see telehealth going away or staying uh, from what you can tell? You know, I think before the pandemic, telehealth was still growing, still trying to catch its foothold. During the pandemic, there were a couple of innovations that really have made it catch on. One was, uh, through that public health emergency, the uh, pay equity, uh, the reimbursement equity with a telehealth visit versus an in-person visit. That funding helped really spur a lot of innovation in this space. Um, They started off early with waivers around the types of technology that you could use uh, to allow people to catch up and not worry so much about HIPAA. But that quickly went away as compliant technology was available. And so we've been using telehealth now for some time, um, even as, you know, again, we're not at a period of high COVID. And many patients prefer it. It does allow people to access healthcare without having to travel a long distance. It allows uh, rural patients the ability to uh, check in with their doctor without travel. Um, It has allowed the growth of uh, programs across the country where hospital service can be provided at home um, in hospital at home programs, uh, which are also covered under a separate uh, Center for Medicaid, uh, Medicare Medicaid waiver. So when I went to, Washington earlier this year on an advocacy visit, I met with members of Congress from both parties, and we talked a lot about telehealth. And there's bipartisan interest in figuring out how do we move forward with telehealth. Uh, they, you know, Members of Congress really see what providers and patients are telling them, that telehealth has grown, uh, it has a place in medicine, and it's here to stay. So I don't think it's going away. I think it'll become part of our arsenal, part of our toolkit. There will always be visits that are better face-to-face, and there will always be visits that may help a patient have access with telehealth um, that they wouldn't before. And so I don't think this is going away. I think it's going to stay, um, and we'll continue to develop that technology. And one of the ways that we'll know it's here to stay is if Congress uh, you know, really does vote on some type of a bill to increase the funding for telehealth uh, you know, so that providers want to still put their time into doing it and these programs can develop. You know, it makes sense. I love telehealth, uh, and I hope that you are right that that this does stay around. Dr. Kino, can you kind of outline, do you see any negatives uh, or maybe outline for us the positives and negatives of telehealth as you see it? Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I think that uh, Dr. Cowart made a, a great point about, you know, developing technology and we're getting better with it. So so that's definitely important with all these HIPAA guidelines and whatnot. So so that's a good thing. And, and you know, I think the pros is just access to medical care, period, end of story. You know, when patients are restricted uh, physically from getting to an office or geographically from getting to an office or the hospital, I, I you know, telehealth really plays a very convenient uh, and I think sometimes life-saving role. Uh, I also want to, you know, stress I'm a hospitalist. I work in the hospital. That's right. where I see all my patients. I'm never in clinic. And I'll tell you that telehealth is the way psychiatry runs itself the majority of the time when we have COVID patients or we have patients that are restricted for infectious reasons. Their psychiatry visits are all telehealth. And so those are important visits that would be delayed and, you know, increase the length of care in the hospital. And, and all these other issues that come into play if we did not have access to that. So I'll tell you in the hospital, telehealth has really helped our psychiatric uh, units and, and visits and care overall robustly. And so I'm, I'm happy to see it. And that's how we really use it in the hospital because uh, the rest of us for patients in the hospital that are acutely ill, obviously we need more hands-on visits and, and we need to see them closer. 
but again, telehealth has so many advantages. Now, you know, the disadvantages is number one, I think with any of this uh, uh, online presence is just security. Again, the HIPAA is the issue. Uh, and so we need to navigate that and make sure that patients have absolute security with their healthcare and, and physicians also, you know, when we talk with our, our, our patients, obviously we want that, we want that uh, security, which is important. And that's, you know, an issue, uh, security breaches that you see, that's an issue that, that we need to constantly keep working on. Um, but I would say that would be the biggest, biggest con of, of telehealth, the security issue. And then again, for me in the hospital, for what I do day in and day out, I need to see patients, I need to touch patients. So that's different. But I sure. think in the outpatient facilities, uh, you know, there's a lot of visits that can be done with telehealth and you don't need a, um, the actual hands-on component for a physical. So there's just, I think the advantages completely outplay the disadvantages for telehealth. That makes perfect sense. And to our listeners, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. If you're just joining us, it's our monthly medical roundtable, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Let me turn the topic just a little bit and go to another condition, and that's the flu. Now, so far, there have been early increases in seasonal influenza activity that have been reported in most of the United States, with the southeast and south-central areas of the country reporting the highest levels of activity. So, Dr. Cowart, are you seeing flu cases here in our area? And why do you think that the flu cases are so elevated all around the U.S. from what at least reports are telling us? Yeah, I, I haven't seen any myself yet uh, this time of year. Like Dr. Aquino, I work in a hospital, so you have to be pretty sick uh, for me to be able to see you. But I can tell you, you know, it's definitely here if you look at the case counts and, and rising. We're in the early part yet of the flu season. My ER colleagues tell me they're seeing it in the ER. Um, and we had personal experience with the flu at a weird time this year. We all got the flu in my family in May. Um, kid brought it home from school. So, you know, flu is a virus that was well suppressed by all the masking and social distancing from the early parts of the pandemic, uh, the COVID pandemic. And so flu really, you know, took a a back seat for the last couple of years. Uh, but now that folks have relaxed those, uh, metrics and are back out and about and not, you know, for the most part using masks, back in restaurants, back in those other places. Flu loves to spread in those environments. Flu also loves to spread in schools and other types of facilities. So it does look like all the indicators would point to us having an early and active flu season. Um, And so the best protection uh, is to get that flu shot when you're there to get your bivalent booster uh, for COVID or at another time. And I, I had mine already this year and just trying to get appointments now to get my husband and my daughter theirs. Uh, just to tell you how bad the flu feels, my nine-year-old uh, remembers having the flu back in May and is asking us, when can she get her flu shot? So if wow. you've ever had a kid, you know, they don't ask for shots. <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> right. You know, so she, she hated having the flu so much and she missed a whole week of school. Uh, so just keep that in mind. A nine-year-old hated it so bad. She wants the flu shot. Uh, flu shots are safe. They're readily available. Uh, you can also check out the Fluvax Jacks program and uh, and go get that flu shot. Now is a great time. I like to get the flu shot uh, whenever I'm able to. Whenever it's available, I go get it. That's the best flu shot to get for me is the one that you can get. Uh, so I know other, other people may have opinions about the timing of it, but you know, I just think it's better to get it than not get it. And uh, it's, it's here uh, in our community. Go get your shot now. Beautifully stated. Uh, Dr. Aquino, let's say that uh, you do come down with the flu. What's your advice uh, for that person? Uh, How should they manage that? Oh, gosh. Well, I think, first of all, in this season, uh, if you come down with any symptoms, you've got to go get tested because it can be the flu or, you know, you could have COVID. Let's not forget that. Okay, COVID is still here. And so you definitely want to verify which one you have. 
And as soon as you have symptoms, you definitely want to get to see your uh, physician, go see your doctor, because there are treatments. We do have uh, treatment for uh, the flu. We have obviously acute treatment for COVID. So when you start developing any of the symptoms, it could be the fever, cough, runny nose, sore throat, headache, fatigue, the muscle aches, you know, all these symptoms, it could be COVID, it could be flu. Uh, so you just definitely need to get to tested sooner than later. So then you can get, you know, appropriate treatment. And remember the treatment for either the flu or even COVID is it's time dependent. You've got to get it done, your treatment within a certain amount of hours of being diagnosed and having symptoms. So you definitely don't want to wait around and see if these symptoms go away and then find yourself a week later in bed feeling miserable because that's going to be too late to acutely treat, you know, the flu if that's what you have, you know, and I do want to mention it's interesting because I guess people are a lot more scared of the flu right now than they are of COVID because yes. as uh, I think earlier this week, the numbers were something like 105 million people have been vaccinated so far for the flu. So out of 330 uh, million Americans, at least one third so far have been vaccinated for the flu. So, so I'm optimistic that that number is going to peak, you know, and I, and I really want to stress, you know, we have nine different flu vaccines at this stage, nine. So when people tell wow. me, oh, I can't get it, I had a bad reaction, I say, listen, there's options. <laughs> there are options for people that have egg allergies. There are options for women that are pregnant. Uh, there are options from older patients. And anyone, I want to stress, anyone six months or older in the United States can receive a flu shot. We need to know that. Such so go out and get your flu shot. <laughs> I love it. And, and, and thank you for pointing out that there are so many options. I don't think we, that, that piece of information gets out there too often. I know you just, you hear people had one experience. It was bad. It was seven years ago. And then they're like, Nope, I don't get my yearly flu shot. And I say, listen, you know, we are evolving. We are really evolving in terms of science and what the options are. And there are so many options right now that there is a flu shot for everyone six months and older. Get your flu shot. Let's switch the topic just a little bit. And, and this is uh, something that is definitely not in the infectious disease group, but having to do with new guidelines to screen kids for anxiety and depression. Now, as I mentioned in the health headlines, for the first time, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommended screening for anxiety in children eight and older. In its final recommendations published this month in the medical journal JAMA, the task force also urged screening for depression in children 12 years and older, consistent with recommendations from 2016. The 2018-2019 National Survey of Children's Health found that 7.8% of children and adolescents aged 3 to 17 years had a current anxiety disorder. Dr. Cowart, children less than eight years, and you just mentioned your daughter who's nine years old, seems so young to screen. So I guess I just will ask just as a physician, do you agree with these recommendations? Um, you know, that's a really great question. I would say you know, your mileage may vary. My experience was that uh, one of my kids did develop some symptoms of anxiety, uh, you know, during the worst parts of the pandemic. And, you know, I don't know if it was because she was, you know, kind of stuck at home, couldn't see her friends for a while. I don't know if it was because of virtual school. I don't know if it would have happened anyway uh, without the pandemic. Uh, you know, none of those things necessarily matter. It was all about trying to get her, you know, some help so she could start to feel better and, and perform better in school without so much anxiety. It was really heartbreaking to watch oh. her go through that and to suffer from anxiety. So I, I would say just my, you know, if I had my personal experience and could say, yeah, you know, this happened to me and my family, then I know we're not alone in that. Uh, and these guidelines are recommending that this be screened because it's, it's so common. It's common in adults and it's, it's now we're seeing it's really common in kids. Um, the biggest thing with screening is to be sure that when you have a positive test for anything that you screen for, that you actually have some kind of treatment available. And so it's going to be really, really important that as doctors and providers implement this guideline and screen younger and younger kids for anxiety and depression, uh, that if that kid screens positive, 
that we try to plug them into resources uh, that you know, to, to try to help them get better and and help them cope with whatever anxiety or depression that they are experiencing. They may need therapy. Some kids may need medication. We have good treatment options available. Access is going to be the key issue here. Uh, and as a society, we absolutely should invest more time and resources into mental health for our kids and for our, our adults who are struggling with mental health disorders. Um, so I think that is one concern that some people have had with this recommendation is that access is so limited uh, that if you do have a kid who screens positive, you know, can you get them into care? But I would say we should still try, we should still plug them in. Yes, there might be a wait time, but we should still start making those calls and get those kids those appointments. And then we should pull on all of our levers uh, to help our society understand that we need to invest more in mental health and mental health services. And we're going to have more kids who are identified as needing care. We need to make sure that that care is available for them. Dr. Coward, uh, what is the best way to find a therapist or someone who can help? Just, I, I know it's hard. You, you outlined that for us, but is there a certain way to find that person? So now I'm going to confess uh, that when, when when this was happening with us, I went to Google. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. We all do it. I, I went to Google. Um, I also, uh, you know, as a physician, I used my networks. I asked around uh, for recommendations. And, and even if I had not been a physician, I would have done the same. Um, I will say, unfortunately, uh, mental health parity in insurance coverage is still poor. And uh, so, you know, getting coverage for those vital services with therapy, uh, you know, it, insurance may or may not cover it. Um, but if you should always also go to your insurance plan and see who's in network and call them first, um, you know, so ch check and see a recommendation and also see what you have coverage for, um, because that's going to be really critical. And it, and, and it will it will limit in some cases who you can see because these these services can be expensive. Um so I'm not going to try to pretend that this system is uh, is great and works well in all cases, um, but I I don't want us to not identify a kid who's at need uh, just because we're worried about trying to find them care. Let's let's identify kids who need care and let's also push on our system to get better. Thank you, Dr. Aquino. Do you think uh, this uh, issue with anxiety in kids? Do you think? This is all COVID related, uh, or was this already here prior to COVID? Well, this was definitely here before COVID. Uh, so pre-COVID, the most recent numbers I was able to get was 5.8 million kids in the United States were diagnosed with anxiety and 2.7 million kids were diagnosed with depression. This is wow. pre-COVID. Wow. And since COVID, we know mental health has really taken a hit. And so these numbers are definitely going higher in these last few years. So I think this is something that's here uh, it's something that's gotten a lot more education and awareness from all of us, you know, our personal experiences with our kids and and talking more about it. Uh, you know, I'll say even out of COVID situation, my daughter, my baby, uh, Gabriela, when she was three and a half, she was diagnosed with a seizure disorder. Oh wow! She developed significant anxiety. So my little five-year-old, when she would go to kindergarten, she would be scared that she would go and have a seizure and poop in front of all her friends. Oh, that that was her anxiety. And as a five-year-old, you can imagine how anxiety-inducing that would be. Yeah. So I, you know, have personal experience with this and you understand the anxiety. And, and so the key with all of mental health, we know this in kids and adults, it's find it early. So I think the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has been uh, aggressive, but I think they're they're on par with this. There's a lot of kids that are suffering. And the thing is, I think as parents, we're so busy, parents and caretakers that we notice when things are bad, but maybe when the kid starts having early symptoms, it's it's hard to really pick that up. I speak as a working parent. I'll tell you some things I just didn't pick up until later. And so I think that these, re, these new recommendations are important because this is going to really pick up kids hopefully early when they start just having a few symptoms that might not be extremely, uh, they might not be acting out yet. And, and at this point, remember, we always want to get them in early if possible and get that talk therapy if possible. We can get them engaged in cognitive therapy and help them with their processes to really develop healthy, healthy relationships with their issues and, and learn how to navigate them. That's always going to be better than waiting till the kid is 16 and, 
you know, failing classes and acting out and having to end up in the ER because they, you know, proceeded with some suicidality uh, and at that point needing a lot of medication and a lot of resources. So I think mental health is one of these issues that you definitely want to find early. And, and I'm hoping this is something that the pediatricians, the family practitioners, the extenders that work in those offices are going to really implement this and really start helping some of these kids. And, and you know, I agree with Dr. Power. This is this is not easy. Access is definitely limited. I will say here in Jacksonville, there is an organization uh, on our sleeves and it works with uh, pediatric uh, mental health. Okay. And it's uh, hashtag on our sleeves or uh, at on our sleeves official. Anyone listening to this, look it up and you will get online. You will find a lot of resources of just amazing resources. Some of them are in Spanish and that's important also, but things of just how to speak to your kid how to um, keep them busy so they don't notice that they're telling you about important stuff because, you know, kids don't want to open up sometimes. But On Our Sleeves is a, is a great resource that Baptist really uh, endorses and I endorse and, and really can give parents some guidance on this issue. And again, it's a good recommendation. I agree with it. Let's find things early so we can really take care of them before they become a bigger issue. That is super helpful. Appreciate that. We have time for one more topic very briefly, uh, and that has to do with an Adderall shortage. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration has declared a nationwide shortage of Adderall, a medication used to treat ADHD that has seen a surge in demand in recent years. Now, the FDA noted that one maker of the drug, Teva Pharmaceuticals, has had continuing manufacturing delays and other manufacturers of generic versions or alternatives have also reported periodic problems with meeting demand. So, Dr. Cowart, the number of ADHD cases has risen sharply. Some are attributing this to telehealth diagnoses. Is the rise in ADHD correct, or do we have an overdiagnosis problem? So, this is kind of an age-old question. Uh, I guess now we're applying this overdiagnosis concern to telehealth, but you know, I remember this being a question when I was in my medical training that ADHD cases were rising, and there was a lot of question of is this you know, real or is this some kind of overdiagnosis? So I, I would hesitate to say this has anything to do with telehealth, and that this is a continued pattern that we're seeing. I think more and more people step up when they notice a problem, um, either in their kid or even as adults. There are some adults who get diagnosed with ADHD. They've had symptoms their whole life, um, but never knew what the problem was until something prompted them to seek help as an adult. Um, so I, I'm all for people getting the help they need. And if they're struggling uh, to pay attention uh, when they need to, to concentrate on studying or work, or their home life, uh, you know, some folks with ADHD, they really struggle even at home. It's it's not just uh, something they struggle with at school or at work. So I, I'm all for people getting that help that they need and putting a name to something that they've struggled with for a long time. Um, this Adderall shortage is really troublesome for people. Many people rely on this medicine and it, it can be difficult to switch uh, ADHD medications. So. I would say if you are a person living with ADHD, it's going to be so important to be in touch with your uh, your healthcare provider, and 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 if this is a medicine that you rely on and and it's you know going to be in such a shortage, you got to check with your doctor now to see if there's a way uh, to safely trial another medication, taper you over, uh, how it, what is that going to look like for you? Because I don't want folks running out and being caught short. And of course, of course, anytime there's a drug shortage, that does happen. So uh, I think raising awareness that, you know, this Adderall shortage is there and that uh, people may be uh, caught short. And so it's really important if this is you and you take Adderall, your kid takes Adderall, uh, you need to get a hold of your doctor and talk about a backup plan uh, in case this shortage affects you. I'm going to have to let that be our final word because of time, but I want to thank uh, you, Dr. Cower, and you, Dr. Kino. This has been uh, terrific. Uh, I always love and appreciate all the great advice uh, that you have for our listeners and for me. So I just want to thank you both again. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for bringing me back on. Uh, it's always great to have you both on. We've been talking to Dr. Jennifer Cowart. She is a hospitalist here in Jacksonville. And to Dr. Michelle Aquino. She is a hospitalist at Baptist, uh, also here in Jacksonville. And up next, a little something to help you get into the Halloween spirit, thanks to the Mutter Medical Museum in Philadelphia. We'll be right back. Dr. Joe Servan, and this is what's health got to do with it. Halloween is on Monday, and I must admit that I love this holiday, as does my senior producer. For me, the best way to get into the spirit of the holiday is by visiting a medical museum filled with medical curiosities. In the United States, one of my personal favorites is the Mutter Museum, located at the historic College of Physicians building in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This medical museum is a must-see, and on this Halloween weekend, I can't imagine a better place for a disturbingly informative bit of education. Kate Quinn is the executive director of the Mütter Museum and the Historical Medical Library, and she joins us now from Philadelphia. Kate, welcome to our show. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. It's so good to have you here. And I am such a huge fan of this museum. Uh, when I trained and lived in Philadelphia, this is always a must-see. I still drag my family there every time we go, and we just love it. So I want you to start us off by telling us a little bit more about the museum. Uh, when did this get started? Uh, how long has it been around? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for coming to this museum in, in your in your lifetime and bringing so many of your friends and family along with you. I grew up in Philadelphia as well, and so this has been part of my experience as a Philadelphian my entire life as well. It's a really, really amazing treasure here in the city of Philadelphia. So the Mütter Museum is part of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, um, and the, it's more of a um, a college of fellows as opposed to a traditional university or college. Um, it's a place where um, physicians and those aspiring to be in the medical community uh, can come together um, to talk about issues facing the field um, at the time that it was founded and today. So the College of Physicians was founded in, in 1787 by a group of um, 24 pretty prominent Philadelphians. Um, soon after the college was founded, the Historical Medical Library uh, comes, comes together. Um, it's one of the world's premier research collections in the history of medicine, which we're very proud to have here. So those foundations were in place when in um, 1863, uh, a noted uh, Philadelphia physician, Dr. Thomas Dent Mutter, um, brings forward his collection, his teaching collection, and offers it to the College of Physicians of Philadelphia to uh, engage uh, physicians and uh, aspiring physicians to uh, engage with this teaching collection to become better, better uh, medical professionals in and of themselves. So with that gift of objects and collection, along with a gift of $30,000 and a promise from the College of Physicians to build a fireproof building to house the collection, the Motor Museum opened in 1863. So that's our history. Wow. So what exactly? I mean, I've been there, but how would you describe to our listeners, uh, to those who are uninitiated, what's in the museum collection? Oh, that's that's a really great question. <laughs> so it's an experience in and of itself. But um, first and foremost, the museum is it's it's filled with medical history, and that comes in the form of of collections of things that help to tell that story. So of course we've got the library, and within the library we've got archives, historical documents, and special collections which 
provide the documentation for the history really of Western medicine as we know it. So those, those objects certainly fulfill that mandate. Um, and the, um, the library is open to the public now on weekends um, from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. So uh, the public for the first time um, can engage with some of those collections. So that's part of it, but that's new as far as the public engagement aspect. The Motor Museum is filled um, with collections that are um, also about medical history, but focused on, on teaching, um, you know, potential and uh, existing physicians. So you're going to see anatomical specimens uh, and models, you'll see medical instruments, and you'll see human remains that are on display. And um, these remains were meant to help folks understand better um, what was happening during surgeries. So there's a, a section certainly focused on tumors, different types that have been taken out of bodies and donated to the museum through its history. Um, you can engage with um, a megacolon, which is on display, wow. which is um, <laughs> the world's largest. It's one of the main attractions to the institution. Um, and numerous other specimens that help folks to understand ailments of the body, um, both back in the time of, the, of its founding and all the way through to today. We have a living donor program, so folks do uh, donate um, remains of their body as they're alive, or if in death, um, some folks have donated their, their full bodies to become skeletons and part of the collection. So our um, expansion of collection is ongoing and um, again, aimed to focus on the teaching of medicine, but now we also focus on engagement with the public about these issues. Oh, that makes it uh, so helpful. What's the, what do you think uh, I, I, when you mentioned that the mega colon that that really hit me? What's the most unusual collection or must see artifact in the museum? I'm sure it, it varies from person to person, but but what what is the 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 item that people must see in these situations? No, I, I think that's a tough question. That's not fair, I guess, okay. to ask. I'll tell you what my favorite thing is to see within the museum, and I find it to, to take me on a journey of, of uh, imagined stories, I'll say. We have um, a collection uh, called the Jackson Chevalier Collection of um, materials that uh, people swallowed, essentially. <laughs> so foreign objects that were removed from the human airways, and there's about 2,300 objects that people have inhaled or swallowed um, that Dr. Jackson extracted um, from people's throats and esophagi and lungs um, over the course of his almost 75 year career. So you can open drawers upon drawer upon drawer and see things that wow. will just shock you. Um, the first drawer uh, at the top, it's all safety pins or the majority of it is safety pins. And I find myself completely engaged in each little thing that someone has swallowed and imagining the story of what happened. And I think a lot about my nieces and nephews who had a tendency to, to swallow things and the chaos that would happen in the moments that the child swallowed something and how you have to have it removed. Um, so there's little toys and thimbles and all sorts of things that, that folks have swallowed. And to me, um, it's so unique and uh, so um, very connected to the medical field uh, that I find it to be quite fascinating in and of itself. I love it. Uh, l let me ask, because you brought up, since this is a growing collection, uh, because people can donate remains to the museum uh, and all, how do you uh, maintain um, almost that sacred aspect of the fact that this is a, you know, remains of certain people, and yet it's also a museum for public education? How do you straddle that line? I think that, um, you know, first do no harm, right? That should be the focus of how we move forward um, within the the management of that, of that delicacy. So there aren't photographs allowed within the institution. You can take photos when you first come in, but nowhere are we allowing anyone to take photos of um, any of the specimens that are on display. Um, so to have respect for the folks that are there and, and the purpose behind the collection, which was all about education. It was never meant to be something that was gawked at or um, meant to be, um, you know, a, a spectacle. Um, I've only been in this role about a month now, but I'll tell you one of the things that attracted me to taking on the role um, was, was our founder himself. Um, Dr. Muder uh, was someone who um, didn't grow up in the Philadelphia region. He grew up in uh, Virginia and then studied abroad and he went to the University of Pennsylvania. 
And after Penn, he went to Paris to study um, and to learn more from what were then considered to be some of the most renowned physicians in the in the world. Um, and while he was there, he he grew attracted to uh, essentially plastic surgery as we know it today. Um, he was fascinated by reconstruction and helping people who had um, ailments and and deformities of the face primarily um, to, to be reconstructed. He came back from Paris and uh, established a practice for himself, but because he didn't come from Philadelphia and because he didn't have old money, which is a very big thing here in Philadelphia, he struggled to have his own practice. Um, but what he did uh, find was, you know, at the time you had surgical theaters, and I'm sure you know this history, yes. that um, when folks were being trained within the medical community, especially surgeons, you know, there's, there's no anesthesia, there's nothing to really dull the pain besides Yikes. whiskey. Um, and you're in a theater, so there's other medical students around in really what is, it's, it's a theater, and they're looking down at the surgery happening um, to learn. And so what you would find is that a lot of folks who didn't have ailments that projected themselves that you couldn't see would chicken out. Essentially, they would say, you know what, I'm going to just struggle through this illness. I do not have to have surgery. I'm not going to go through this experience. And they would walk away and decide to you know, manage the ailment that they were um, struggling with without surgery. But people, and particularly women, who had had some kind of deformity, and at the time there were a lot of women, just considering how, how they dressed at the time, the long dresses and the skirts and what women did, which were mostly domestic work, um, a lot of women's dresses caught on fire. And when those women's dresses would catch on fire, the fire would travel up the dress and um, really go towards the face. And so you had a lot of women who had um, struggled with deformities of the face, and at the time they were called monsters. Um, oh and those people had really seen the worst of society. They had been berated and they had gone through living a life that was pretty unbearable from many perspectives. So they would be very willing to have the surgery. They, they saw that they, the surgery had to change um, how their life experience existed already. So Dr. Mutter um, really established a practice for himself that was about addressing these issues. And, and he, he applies empathy in ways that wasn't common practice at the time in the medical community um, and brought forward what he saw in Paris. And he was one of the first in the country to establish essentially a bedside manner. Um, he advocated for pre-op and post-op um, attention to patients. So instead of them coming through this surgery and being put into a carriage on these cobblestone streets and post-op just traveling home and good luck to you to see whether or not you made it. He advocated for um, for post-op to, you know, to take a look at the patient sure. and watch them, check in them after they had the surgery and went through this traumatic experience under the supervision of the physician. So he applies empathy in ways that I think are, are remarkable uh, for for its time. And, you know, sometimes you don't want to pay attention to founders' stories. Maybe that founder isn't really uh, embedded in the best practices by today's standard. But Dr. Mutter seems to be one who you probably want to amplify in a lot of ways. So I, I've been struck by his story and, and look forward to um, bringing some of that practice to our daily uh work here at the Mutter museum wow is i i have now learned some piece of the story <laughs> that i this is it's well i could spend a lot more time in this direction uh, let me ask you this um how can folks find the museum learn more about it here we are in uh, north florida um uh, and, and to those who may not have been there, and, and I totally recommend it, how can folks find out more about the museum, learn more about it, um, just so that they have that information? Yeah, well, certainly they can take a look at our website, which is uh, motormuseum.org, and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. We're at Motor Museum in both instances. And we have a really popular and um, very well-curated YouTube channel, oh. which is at museum. Um, it's, I think, the third uh, strongest following in the Philadelphia region for YouTube. Um, it's, it's worthwhile, and we dive into collections and specific stories there. So that would be a great way to engage with the work that we're doing, uh, first and foremost. Let me ask you, is the museum open to anyone, or do you have to work in healthcare to visit it? Museum is open to anyone, and we are open six days a week. Um, and if you're here on weekends, you get access to the uh, medical library uh, room as well. Um, but yes, open to anyone. What are some upcoming exhibitions uh, that you may have planned uh, for either the remainder of this year or 2023? 
<laughs> well, right now we have a small exhibition that's on display and it is um, actually focused on the year of Dracula, which is connected oh. with a local museum here, uh, the Rosenbach uh, Museum and Library, which focuses on special collections and historic books. And they're celebrating the anniversary of Bram Stoker's Dracula and we've connected with them. And so we do have a small exhibition that is in our, um, our front gallery, our lobby space really, um, that touches on um, the history of Dracula and his connection to the medical community. Beyond that, um, we're looking ahead, and I will say that we're in early stage planning for new exhibitions, um, and I can't announce anything specific sure, yet, sure. Um, but to pay attention to our website for, for things to come, there's, um, there's a lot of great ideas, and so hopefully we'll have them pinned down quite soon, but I'm very new, so <laughs> we're still getting our bearings here. Kate, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us. This has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, and uh, we just really appreciate you joining and sharing uh, some information about uh, this museum, one of my favorites, uh, with all of our listeners today. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be here and to, to speak with you and to share this great institution with so many of your listeners. We really, really appreciate it. And happy Halloween, I might add. Uh, we, <laughs> we've been talking to uh, Kate Quinn. She is the executive director of the Mütter Museum and the Historical Medical Library. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Isabella De Silva is our director. Next week's program is our show on the healthcare of driving. If you have questions about this or any other topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, emailing us at health at wjct.org, or tweeting me at jserv. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jackson. Thank you for listening, and happy Halloween. Then you can monster mash. The monster mash. And you my graveyard smash. You'll catch on in a flash. Then you can mash. Then you can monster mash. Mash. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.